as you check out the beauty of some long stem roses or admire a bouquet of daffodils, consider that flowers, despite their physical delicacy, are also robust. Flowers are reproductive innovators. They evolved effective strategies to disperse seeds, often recruiting other organisms to help. Now scientists want to identify the first bloom, that is, the father and mother of all flowers. The physical first flower is like a holy grail, and it's been a bit of a holy grail since Darwin. Darwin talked about the abominable mystery of flowering plants because they do just kind of appear in the fossil record. But why did flowers emerge? After all, for many millions of years, plants were doing just fine, reproducing without them. Also, can we understand how plant life might adapt to our changing climate by studying its past? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, What Secrets an Ancient Flower Reveals, the innovative hunt to trace the family tree of flowers, and scientists try to improve on turning sunlight into stored energy. Could tinkering with photosynthesis help us avoid a global food shortage? This episode is Flower Power. Can you give the name of the flower stand? The name is Millefiori. It means 1,000 flowers in Italian language. You have an incredible display and diversity of flowers here. What sort of flower is this? Locodendron. Locodendron. Yes, those are, there is 100 different kinds. And it is almost yellowish white. And I'll show you another one. They call it Persian poppy. Or Persian poppy. Yes. These are, they grow in Persia very wild, but they bring it here. This is Genestra. It's coming from Brazil. Sort of looks like seagrass or something with yeah. light white flowers. Smell with it. the smell okay, it. smell it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Lovely. But when they're fresh, they smell a lot. How long have you had this stand? We are in this business 57 years. Are you impressed with the diversity of colors that flowers come in? <laughs> It's amazing the way nature designed this blow up my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to get a bouquet of flowers. Okay. That gentleman has been peddling petals for more than a half century. But flowers are, relatively speaking, the new plants on the block. Plants appeared about 700 million years ago, but flowers showed up much more recently, only about 140 million years ago. They did well and came to dominate the plant scene. Now flowering plants make up about 90% of all living land plants, and that is awesome flower power. Well, what makes them so successful? Scientists hope to answer that by identifying the first flower, and we'll hear about their efforts later in the show. But tracing the lineage of flowers is challenging because fossilized flowers are rare. A delicate petal is not like a hefty dinosaur femur. But here's a story about an impressive specimen. Scientists have recently re-examined the largest flower found preserved in amber. And it just looks like it was dropped into the resin flow a couple of minutes ago. So it's really beautifully preserved. Picture a forest of resin-dripping conifers in the area around the Baltic Sea. Sometime between 38 and 34 million years ago, the resin from one of those trees oozed over a flower, entombing it in sticky goo. And um, I put it under my light microscope and then I saw that there was pollen coming out of the stamens. And I knew from the literature that this hasn't been shown before. 
The nearly 40 million year old flower, considered large at about an inch in width, has seeded interest among other scientists who study ancient ecosystems, such as paleobotanist Regan Dunn. Well, I think it's super cool. For one thing, I was just really pleased to see this amazing find receive so much attention in the public press. That never happens for fossil plant discoveries. And so I think it's a really good sign that people are starting to recognize the importance of plants more. Yeah, hello everybody. My name is Eva-Maria Zadowski and I'm from Germany, from the Natural History Museum in Berlin. And I'm a polybotanist and my speciality is amber and plants that are trapped inside amber. That preservation includes, surprisingly, those tiny pillowy grains of pollen. You know, pollen seems like it would be really fragile. But it turns out it's made of one of the most biologically resistant polymers known on Earth. And it's a compound called sporopollenin. And it is really resistant to decay. We have pollen grains and spores that date to, uh, you know, like 400 million years ago. So these are extremely resistant tissues. But we have a mystery here. What Baltic species produced the resin that encased them? So we have several candidates. We know it's a conifer, but we don't really know which one. But we have identified the flower inside the amber. The pollen helped Dr. Sadowski correct a case of mistaken identity. The flower had been labeled an extinct flowering evergreen when it was collected 150 years ago. But then it sat in a museum largely ignored ever since. After using a conventional microscope, the paleobotanist switched to a piece of equipment that was not available in the late 19th century, a scanning electron microscope. Each plant family, or even sometimes each species or each genus, has very characteristic or specific pollen morphology in most of the plant families. So they are like a fingerprint for specific taxa, and they can look really amazing. They have unique pollen morphologies. Describe a beautiful pollen morphology to us. Yeah, um, so they can have spines, they can have a smooth surface, they can have different shapes, they can have little pores in the surface. It's like all the diversity you could imagine. I can't even describe it, but it's like if you look at such a pollen under scanning electron microscope, it's opening up a new world. She learned that the flower, originally classified as Stuartia kolowski, belonged to a different genus entirely, a species that's now extinct in the Baltic area, but its closest living relatives today grow in East and Southeast Asia. The theory is that the flower originated in Europe and migrated to North America and later Asia. A new name was proposed, Simplocos kolowski. So, based on tiny grains of pollen, there was a recategorization of these ancient petals from Stuartia kolowski to Simplocos kolowski. But unique shapes for flowers, they have a purpose, right, Molly? They help ensure that the correct species is pollinated, like the way that a unique key fits into a specific lock. So our story so far, about 40 million years ago, along what is now the Baltic coast, although it wasn't a coast then, this flower was in the bloom of its youth. But what did it look like? Well, we can't tell from the fossil exactly, but probably yellow, pink, or purple flowers. But we know that it probably was a shrub or a small tree. 
Ah, a flowering shrub or a tree. So not a standalone <laughs> flower like a daisy or no, lily no. or something mm -hmm. like that. I see. Well, Eva, could it have been from the same tree that was producing the resin? Probably not, because this was a coniferous tree. So it was not an angiosperm, not a flowering plant. Well, that amber certainly makes for beautiful fossilized flowers, but they are more than that. They are time capsules. Each fossil is like a piece of a puzzle to understand a bigger picture. Such as how vegetation and habitats evolve with a changing climate. If the climate changes, plants have a couple of options. They either adapt, they go extinct, or they change their distribution. For example, plants might adapt by changing their leaf size to accommodate the availability of water. In this way, ancient plants can give us a clue about what past environments were like. Consider the enormous leaves of a tropical rainforest plant. Large leaves mean lots of available water, and evaporative loss is not a consideration. But now consider what happens to leaves where there's a dearth of water. And if you look at the leaves, they are like really small. They're almost needle-like. And if you have such a small leaf surface, that also means that you lose less water over the leaf surface. And this is an adaptation for a drier environment. Eva Sadowski says that she might like to temporarily change up her own environment and swap her lab coat for hiking boots to hunt for amber fossils herself along the Baltic coast or closer to home. But actually we have an amber deposit close to Berlin. It's in Bitterfeld. They dig for amber in a lake and I already visited them and was on this boat and I could see how the amber was coming up to the surface and that was a really great experience. Well, another sticky biopreservative has been bubbling up to give plant scientists a peek into the ancient past. Here at the La Brea Tar Pits, we study plants from the last ice age. So that is the last 50,000 years of Los Angeles history, preserved in asphalt or tar. And that is an incredible means of preservation. It's similar in amber in a way in that these plant materials fall into the asphalt. You can kind of think of that like amber, and they're preserved right along with the bones that La Brea is so famous for as well. Those bones come from three and a half million specimens of ancient animal life in Southern California, and they've put the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum, where assistant curator Reagan Dunn works, on the map. And what makes them stick to that map is tar. The streets of L.A.'s Miracle Mile are more bubbly than usual, literally tonight. That's because tar continues to bubble to the surface. It's happening along a stretch of Wilshire Boulevard near the world This naturally occurring asphalt is uniquely at the surface here at the La Brea Tar Pits. And it, this is unlike other places in Los Angeles. And that is because Los Angeles was underwater, under the sea for most of its history. And so it's really only recently popped out of the ocean. So we have all these really rich organic marine strata below us, and that's where the oil is produced. And also because Los Angeles is near the San Andreas Fault and the edge of the continent, we have a lot of seismic activity. So when, when there's an earthquake, this oil finds its way up these fissures up to the surface. And so it's, the oil has been finding its way here for the last 50,000 years, and it continues to this day. 
It bubbles up into the buildings around us. It bubbles up into the elevator shafts. Well, so we've got naturally occurring asphalt bubbling up onto more asphalt. But Dr. Dunn is interested in the sticky stuff that appeared before the movie studios and the Hollywood sign. She gives us an overview. Every part of a plant that could land in the asphalt is preserved. So that includes wood. We have some very large wood specimens, some tree trunks that are up to you know 10 feet long and probably about uh, one and a half feet in diameter. And that's fantastic because those tree rings can give us a record of climate during the life of that tree. But we also have lots of fruits and seeds. So we have acorns of the oaks that lived around here and still live around here today. So the last 50,000 years is not a lot of time. So the plants that we find in the tar pits have living species growing in California in most cases today. We have a lot of teeny tiny seeds. Those are probably lots of different kinds of wildflowers that grew around here at the time. And also individual grains of pollen. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, and even tinier things. So because asphalt is sticky and because pollen is so present in the air blowing around all the time, it's a perfect trap for pollen. It gives you information about an entire ecosystem. It's a really powerful tool to understand how change happens. So what plants are on the landscape and at what times and then how how those change through the 50,000 years that we have here. And have you found many flowers trapped in the in the tar there in La Brea? No, unfortunately, we haven't found any flowers. Flowers are a little bit delicate and we have a lot of uh, sand in the asphalt. So the sand is really abrasive and it churns around with the mixing of the asphalt and bubbles and anything that's really soft like petal tissue would be just ground up into to dust. Could you give us some of the big picture questions that you're asking? Why are we interested in what the climate was like or the ecosystem, the environment was like 50,000 years ago? Yeah, um, I think that the last 50,000 years in Los Angeles have seen more change than any other time in Earth history. And so it's a critical time. 50,000 years ago, Earth was in an ice age. While we weren't covered with glaciers here in California, the climate was much cooler and wetter at the time. So we had this nice lush ecosystem that had supported woodlands where we had this really rich um, diversity of megafauna or large animals. So we had mammoths and mastodons and saber-toothed cats and American lions, a large assemblage of really diverse animals who were eating the vegetation. But these ecosystems really went through a transformation when the glaciers began to melt. And that involved about a 10 degrees Celsius change in um, temperature. So that's a massive warming. And of course, now we're going through a large global warming event that could be even faster and more dramatic. So you have this major global warming event, and that coincides with the extinction of many of these large animals. This is also the time period when humans are arriving and increasing their numbers in North America and in Southern California. And it's a, it's a time of major environmental change. And so we've been investigating what was the cause of that extinction event. And of course, when you, when you know when the extinction event happens, you can know that, but you don't know why until you understand the mechanism. So the fossil record of plants is critical to tell us the reasons why 
these major ecological transformations happen and why these megafauna went extinct. Can you draw the connection between studying the plants to understand the extinction of the animals? Can you just draw that a little bit tighter for us? Yeah, sure. So plants are critical part of our terrestrial ecosystems. They provide all of the energy from the sun that all terrestrial life depends on. So any transformation in the, the productivity of the plants, so how, how much leaf material, how much carbon that plants are producing is gonna affect everything above that in the food web. So if you have a major change in the plant cover because it's gotten really hot and you have these droughts, that's gonna affect the herbivores. The herbivores then, their, their decline is gonna affect the carnivores. And so you have the whole system. So it goes bottom up in the food web. And so any perturbation at the base of the food web means chaos at the top. I'm really struck by what you said of pollen being particularly hardy. And I would guess that that would extend to all plants. Um, they've been around for a long time. They have, as you said, the rest of the life is built upon them. Is there something about a plant, being a plant, <laughs> that has made them particularly hardy, survivors? What is it about plants? Sure, plants don't require much. They require sunlight and water and nutrients. Those are pretty universally found. And so plants have different requirements for all of those things that they need. But a plant doesn't require all the things that animals do. So the structures are pretty conserved over time. They haven't changed a lot. Now, that's different when you consider the flower, the evolution of the flower. And so the flowers have changed quite a bit over the last, you know, 100 million years. And so they, flowers themselves, have been adapting and transforming to attract new kinds of life, to attract pollinators. And so the march with the flowers, the pollen, and the pollinators has been a, a very interesting transformation. Thank you to paleobotanist Reagan Dunn, an assistant curator at the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum in Los Angeles, and Eva Maria Sadowski from the Natural History Museum in Berlin. Well, that flower preserved in amber is millions of years old, but it's not the oldest flower. The hunt for the ancestor of all flowers is underway. You can say it's kicked off a lot of bloomin' research. This episode of Big Picture Science is flower power. It may be true that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. We can test it here in the Morecambe Rose Garden in Oakland, where there are lots of names for roses. Goldstruck, another one is Strike It Rich, the fairy, which is one of my favorites. And um, oh, some presidents, uh, JFK, uh, Herbert Hoover, Mr. Lincoln, which is a very popular rose. Julia Child, who's named after the famous chef. I am Royal Krieger. I am a uh, American Rose Society a certified consulting rosarian is sort of my handle, which assumes I know something about uh, roses. 
now I'm wondering, is there anyone who has not had a rose named after them? Yeah, one starts to wonder about that. And then, of course, there's all of the private hybridizers that just do it as a hobby, and they name it after their uh, aunts and uh, mothers and whatever. Now, you said one of your favorite is the fairy, which is here in front of us. It has not started to bloom yet. It's a bit early in the season. Why is this one of your favorites, and what does it look like when it does bloom? It's one of the roses that has a lot of bloom on one cane, and there's many varieties of that type. And that one's just a lovely um, pink uh, rose, and, uh, well, I just like it. (laughs) I would imagine, though, it would be hard to pick out your favorite here. There must be, I'm going to guess, 200 different varieties of rose here in the Morecambe Rose Garden? You know, it's funny, we've never calculated that, but uh, we've got well over 2,000 roses here. I see. So you don't know how many varieties of roses there are, but you have at least 2,000 rose bushes to prune and keep track of. Uh, Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. Are all the roses here in the rose garden related to each other? Did they all descend from one mother and father rose? Well, good question. Roses go back about 40 million years. Uh, All roses are native to uh, the northern hemisphere. The climate and the conditions were uh, quite different than they would be today. But there was what we call species roses, which are the original natural roses that were created. And uh, so if you have a harsher climate, such as uh, in the northern European, those roses tended to be uh, much more hardy and somewhat different, uh, as opposed to, let's say, uh, roses that eventually evolved into southern China, which uh, can be more delicate. So all species roses are the genesis of all roses that are what we have today. And of the rose descendants, some of them are cultivated by humans, and some of them are pollinated naturally with bees and butterflies? Bees and butterflies and any other insect that wants to roll around uh, inside the rose and then wander over to another one. And then once you plant one type of rose next to another rose, and uh, let's say the bees do their thing, uh, then voila, they may create uh, a new uh, seed, then that's planted, and that becomes a, uh, a variation of that uh, rose. So that's really the, the uh, you might say, how the family tree started to develop. I see that there is a, a ladybug there making her way. Ah, yes. Does she help out with the pollination at all, or just is she another admirer of the rose? Well, she's an admirer. She's not, uh, to my knowledge, a pollinator. She could be accidentally, but uh, she eats aphids, and uh, so we just love ladybugs for their uh, for their big appetite on munching on little bad guys like the aphids. Now, you said roses have been around for millions of years, but they've been domesticated or they've been cultivated. When did rose cultivation begin? Well, we don't know exactly because there's no written records, Um, but we uh, do know that certainly by the year 2000 B.C., uh, there was active work done with the uh, roses. and uh, let's say 500 B.C., uh, Confucius, uh, in his writings, makes a reference to the Chinese and uh, the royal gardens and libraries. In fact, at that point, there was about 50 volumes uh, just dedicated to roses. And so there was a lot of work and understanding and advancement, uh, relatively speaking, that goes way back. What were roses bred for? Color, petal shape, um thorn size? What would it have been? Well, not thorn size. Uh, a lot of it was uh, medicinal, uh, but also uh, it was uh, done for for beauty. Captain uh, Smith, who uh, was one of the early, uh, I'll call him visitors from, uh, from Europe in 15... 15- 
25 or whatever, uh, he noted in his uh, log that uh, the American Indians uh, had uh, were using the, the native roses uh, here on the uh, northeast coast for uh, basically a beauty of uh, around their uh, their villages. So uh, that is something that was picked up by uh, unrelated civilizations uh, throughout the world. So they've been appreciated and bred for a long time. For a very long time, roses are the most varied of all flower uh, groups, from color, from form to shape. So uh, it, it truly is, and of course, maybe it's a, the bias of a rosarian speaking here, but it's a, it's truly the queen bee of the of the flower world. Well, Royal Krieger, thank you so much for talking to us. And I guess the question that everybody has now is, is there a Royal Krieger rose? Have one of these varieties been named after you in honor of your many years working here in the Rose Garden? <laughs> I don't think it deserves any any name of a rose for me. You've got to be a pretty special uh, heavyweight to uh, get a rose named after yourself. <laughs> Before everything could come up roses, there had to be the first flower the mother and father of all flowers. Now, scientists are on the hunt for it. The physical first flower is like a holy grail, and it's been a bit of a holy grail since Darwin. Charles Darwin was troubled by the sudden appearance of flowering plants in the fossil record. He called it an abominable mystery. After all, plants did just fine for millions of years without blossoms. And there's this big gap between seed plant fossils and flowering plant fossils. When flowering plant fossils appear in the fossil record, it's like suddenly they're everywhere. But they did come evolutionarily. They came from a single point and there would have been a first flower. Uh, hi, I'm Ruby E. Stevens. I'm a PhD candidate at Macquarie University in Sydney. She participates in an effort to identify the first flower on Earth called the E-Flower Project. The international scientific collaboration wants to get to the root of the mysterious flowering that occurs in plant evolution and subsequent offshoots. Not just what did the first flower look like, but what did the first daisy look like, for example. But as we heard, flowers don't fossilize particularly well. So how do you construct their evolutionary lineage? It is tricky. And so you can use fossil evidence from good flowers and you can combine that with all of the flowering plants that we have today and their genetic information about how they're related to each other. And you can make inferences and it's sort of, you know, you run models and you calibrate things. It's always a bit speculative because it's always millions of years in the past. Scientists believe that flowers first appeared around 120 to 130 million years ago, a lineage that diverged from seed plants and trees, such as conifers. In a lot of the contemporary seed plants, they're called gymnosperms, and that means naked sperm. The ovule is kind of naked, it just sits, and there's no covering over it. And so that morphological structure means that there's not a lot of ability for those plants to have any selection or have any way of preventing their own pollen from fertilizing them and preventing self-pollination. Providing coverage for the seed is a defining trait of what came next, flowering and fruiting seed plants called angiosperms that include oak trees, daisies, roses, and perhaps it's surprising to hear, grasses. The questions for the e-flower project include how and why did the ancestor of the first flowering plant appear? Ruby, as your team investigates what is not known about the first flower, this change to flowering plants was driven presumably by evolution. And, you know, what was the benefit to the plants 
to have these flowers? Why did they do this, if you will? The real benefit of flowers and flowering plants, angiosperms, and that means covered carpal. And the carpal is like the ovule, the female part that forms the seed. And so that covering meant that they could form all of these structures that mean that when a flower is pollinated, they can select basically, oh, is this pollen from myself or is this pollen from another plant? And sometimes they can even select, oh, is this pollen genetically quite close to me or is this pollen genetically quite different to me? So it meant that outcrossing and being able to have greater genetic diversity was much more possible. You mentioned outcrossing, and that just means, you know, pollination with a, with a different species of flower. So it sounds like what you're saying is that these evolutionary developments allowed flowers to recognize the correct pollinator sort of like a dating app, which gives you the opportunity to, to meet, you know, somebody who's compatible with you from an evolutionary point of view. But, you know, what were they trying to achieve? Just make sure they didn't have wild cards in the genetic record or something? The advantage that flowering plants have really is that ability to combine in one flower, both the male and the female parts. So most other plants, they, because they don't have the covered ovules, they don't cover their female parts. They aren't able to prevent self-pollination, basically. And self-pollination, if you let it happen after a while, it's really a killer because you get inbreeding. It's about like the more outcrossing you can do in sexual reproduction, generally the less susceptible you are to all sorts of different diseases and the quicker you can adapt as well, you know, if there's a pathogen or big climatic changes. And flowering plants are basically able to do that better. So it sounds like you're saying sex is a good thing, even for flowers. Yeah, it all comes down to sex, and, and sex really does do, do well for plants. So, Ruby, if I could sort of transport you back to the ear of that first flower, you know, what would it look like? Would it have a stamen and petals and all the things that we think of when it comes to flowers? Our model of the first flower thus far suggests that the sepals and the petals might have been combined, and that happens in a lot of plants. But definitely it had those parts, so some part on the outside to attract a pollinator, and then inside that, the stamens, and then in the middle of that, it actually possibly had multiple pistils. What, what, what about the, uh, you know, the smell? Was that uh, an early evolutionary development? I wish I could know what the first flower might have smelled like. That is quite difficult to quantify <laughs> smell across flowering plants, even today. You know, if you want to work out a smell, you've got to work out like the chemical signature of that flower. You can't just sort of describe it in data. Oh, that one is, smells like vanilla. So it sounds like today, all flowers are descended from that first flower. How would you be able to discern this? I mean, were flowers only invented once, I guess is my question, or could there have been multiple origins for flowers? Ah, oh, that's a really interesting idea. Definitely. All flowers today, all the flowers that you see around you, even though they're crazy different from each other, they all descended from one single ancestor. Um, we know that from their genetic relatedness, but also from the fossil record along the way that traces tiny glimpses of their evolution. Before flowering plants, we have a bit of evidence of seed plants that had structures a little bit like flowers. Benetitales is a good example, but none of them match at all what we would call a modern flower. And like I said, there's a huge chasm in between. It seems to me that once you get a flower, you know, just by genetic accident, maybe a cosmic ray comes down and it hits a plant and the plant produces something that attracts a pollinator, say a bug of some sort, right? There are so many advantages 
to having that happen that it really takes off at that point. So you invent it once, but you know, then it then it really flowers, so to speak. <laughs> it definitely flowers. Yes. It's such a successful, successful mechanism. And a big part of that is insect pollination and we think now that, that there was definitely insect pollination before flowering plants. Um, different seed plants, even today, there are seed plants that have insects that carry pollen from one flower to the other, but it really took off in flowers and flowers developed nectar and they've got all sorts of different structures. Some of them trap insects. Um, there's so many different pollination mechanisms and that's clearly been really key to their success. So the point is that with pollinators, suddenly, you know, the genetic diversity can really take off because you can be pollinated by the pollen from some plant that might be 100 yards away or whatever. And, you know, now you have gene mixing, you have a rapid improvement from an evolutionary point of view. Particularly what you have with pollinators is specificity. So the pollen from wind pollinated plants can travel hundreds of kilometers, but it's very not specific. You just, they cast out the pollen on the wind and who knows where, if it ever, ever meets a compatible plant. But with insects, you've got an insect that is trained to go to this flower, pick up some pollen, and then it's going to go and look for a similar flower because it likes that reward. And some insects like honeybees can fly 10 kilometers quite a ways, and obviously bird and bat pollinators as well. Even lizards visit flowers to pollinate them. So thank them as well when you see them. <laughs> well, finally, Ruby, we're looking for the first flowers. But, you know, what's the big picture here? What does that tell us? What will we know if we can find that? I mean, flowering plants are what feeds us and clothes us and houses us every day. So I think it's important for us to just understand where they came from in the beginning and what the initial flower looks like so that we can know maybe where flowering plants are going, how they've tracked along their history and, and how they've diversified basically through that history as well. I really want to know what might have pollinated that first flower. And I think that will tell us something as well about what's happening with flowering plants all around the world today because they are in every habitat and where evolution might be taking them in the future. Ruby Stevens, thanks so very much for speaking to us. No worries. Thank you. Ruby E. Stevens is a PhD candidate at Macquarie University in Sydney, and she is a member of the eFlower Project. The benefit of flowering plants is not just to keep your local florist in business, it's to keep flowers in business, right? Or at least the plants they're attached to, because it does increase that genetic diversity. And that means when conditions change locally in the environment or whatever, if you have a lot of genetic diversity, you're probably going to survive it. Up next, once a seed germinates, the plant that pokes through the soil draws energy from sunlight. Photosynthesis has been around in some form for billions of years. It may be the most important chemical process on the planet, but could we improve on it? Next, the effort to recreate photosynthesis in the lab. This episode of Big Picture Science is Flower Power. As far as reliable recipes go, here's one we've been using a long time. So the process uses the energy of sunlight 
to convert water and carbon dioxide into carbohydrates. When a bunch of single-celled algae first appeared in the ocean and started turning atmospheric gases into food using sunlight, it was still early in our planet's history, relatively speaking, not long after the planet had cooled down from its fiery birth. Now those photosynthesizing blue-green algae, and of course they were bacteria, started doing their thing about 3.8 billion years ago. But about a billion years later, the byproduct of this process, oxygen, began to fill the atmosphere. Animals soon adapted by breathing in oxygen and using it to power their metabolism. Great, right? But here's what you don't expect us to say about the process that is at the bottom of the food chain. Photosynthesis is terribly inefficient. Even gasoline engines are many times more efficient than photosynthesis. Yet, using sunlight to store energy was a neat trick, one that nature held on to. By the time plants emerged around three billion years after those first algae, the process of creating stored energy through a chemical reaction involving water, carbon dioxide, and sunlight was fully operating. With such a long history, how could it be anything but perfect? No worries. We can fix it in post, as they say. Scientists tinkering with photosynthesis in the lab now hope to produce a more efficient process that can help address global food shortages. Stephen Long is a professor of plant biology and crop sciences at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Okay, Steve, we all learn about photosynthesis in middle school, how chlorophyll allows plants to store sunlight as energy, sugars they need for growth. How good is that process? I mean, approximately what fraction of the energy that falls on, you know, solar energy, falls on a green leaf, is actually turned into glucose, you know, sugars, which is stored energy for the plant. If you go through the theory of all the steps in the process, then the efficiency should be about 10%. 10% of that light should end up in organic molecules. But if you look at what our best crops do, it's more like 2%. And of course, the average 2%. is even below that. Wow. Oh, look, Steve, I mean, 2%. I thought my car was inefficient, but I think that something like 20 or 30% of the energy in the gasoline I put into that car eventually results in turning the wheels. What are 2%? Even steam engines were better than that. Yep. <laughs> but of course, you know, you are looking at conversion into stored energy. So this isn't instant energy. It's energy you can store up, you can use for building organisms and all of their functions. It isn't really the same as making that comparison, but it is, it is low, and that's because there are so many conversion steps. And in every step, you're losing some energy, which tells us there should be a lot of headroom for improvement. So we could make our crops, in theory, a lot more efficient than they are. Well, it sounds to me like there's a lot of room for improvement. I mean, I have some photo cells, you know, at home, similar to the solar panels people like to, you know, put onto their rooftops to generate electricity. I, th I think they have an efficiency somewhere between 10 or 20 percent. And that sounds like it's a lot better than chlorophyll. It is, but remember, they're only making electricity. Now you've got to use that electricity to make organic molecules. Sounds like I should cut chlorophyll some slack. But before I do, I have to point out something that occurred to me even as a kid. Leaves are green, right? In other words, they're reflecting green light, even though that's the part of the rainbow, part of the spectrum where the sun is putting out the most energy. In other words, green plants are throwing away the light that would be best for turning into energy storage. 
How did that happen? They're not really throwing away most of that light. If you measure how much of the light a leaf is absorbing of sunlight, blue, green, red combined, typical leaf is absorbing about 90% of the light it receives. And in fact, it's poorer in the green than it is in the red and blue, which is why they appear green. But it is actually absorbing a lot of that green light and, and using it. The problem is downstream, you know, when you're now trying to build this into organic molecules. So the assimilation of the carbon dioxide. So it's not the absorption of the energy, if you will, where the sunlight meets the leaf. It's in the chemistry that follows that. Yes, exactly. You know, a number of years ago, uh, I, I looked up the efficiency of chlorophyll and saw how terrible it was. But what we did was try to guess whether there were any aliens out there on other worlds in our galaxy that had green skin that were running on chlorophyll. And, uh, you know, the bottom line was, given the efficiencies, there might be such aliens, but they'd probably sleep all day because they didn't have enough energy to do anything more. Yeah, single-celled animals can use the energy of photosynthesis. I mean, there are single-celled animals which do photosynthesize, but as you get to our size, there is, unfortunately, there's no way it will work for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get back to chlorophyll with its truly crummy efficiency. Why didn't nature come up with a better design? Is this just a matter of chlorophyll being the first chemical process to be able to produce food as storage of solar energy? And, you know, once you establish that precedent, the first one across the finish line just wins, no matter how good or bad it is. That, well, that's very common in evolution that that does happen. You, know? <laughs> you, you might be inefficient, but if you're less inefficient than your neighbor, you win. <laughs> and of course, it's like any chemical conversion. You, to build something, you've got to put in energy, you know, a portion of which is lost as heat. Well, you're trying to improve photosynthesis, right? You know, what's the motivation there? I suppose the motivation is twofold. From a scientific viewpoint, we know in theory that efficiency could be 10%, but no crops are coming close to that. The other motivation is that we're up against a, a very significant global problem that one in 10 people in the world are starving today. For significant periods of the year, they literally do not have enough food. That number's been increasing every year since 2014, and UNFAO predict this could become catastrophic by mid-century. So the motivation is really to engineer improvements in photosynthesis so that we can get higher yields on the land we're already using in agriculture. How, how do you do that? I mean, do you just take some... Uh, existing plants and subject them to a whole bunch of cosmic rays and introduce all sorts of, I don't know, mutations in their, their code and see if any of those offspring are better at this? That is what people have been doing for some time. Radiation breeding you know, has been going for 60 years, but our approach has been rather different. Photosynthesis is the most studied of all processes in plants. So we know every step. We know the reactions involved. So we can build a digital twin, i.e. replicate the whole system on a computer and then probe that to say, well, which reactions are the bottlenecks? Rather like looking at a car production line and saying, OK, I've got a thousand workers. 
where do I put them to get the maximum output? You know, and it might be I find, well, we're slow at making car seats, so we need to move more of the people there. And then, okay, then another bottleneck will appear. And the computer can work through these very rapidly. Our next step was to then go, okay, well, let's engineer those, which is what we've done. And we've shown three different changes which have given us about a you know, 20% improvement in crop yield. So getting a bit closer to that theoretical efficiency. So you make a big improvement in the lab, right? But of course, you know, you're not growing food crops in the lab. What, what about scaling up anything that you find? Is that, you know, a difficult problem or not? Oh, okay. Well, the way we work is, you know, we make those changes. We test it in the greenhouse. If it works there, then we take it to our experimental farm at the University of Illinois, and we test it there in replicated trials. And we we also have a farm in Puerto Rico, you know, where we're particularly testing tropical germplasm, you know, to see, okay, will this work in an environment like the environments in Africa? Do you get any pushback from, I don't know, environmentalist groups or whatever that say, well, look, this is all kind of frankenplants. This is not something we would ever want to eat. Or is it, you know, accepted at the supermarket? Well, I guess what we're most concerned about are where people are starving are really the poorer countries of sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. And ironically, a lot of those who are food insufficient are smallholder farmers. You know, these are the rural poor. People feeding their family on half an acre of land or whatever. So our aim is to really get it to these people. And I'm sure there would be pushed back, especially in Europe, of, you know, any genetically engineered crop. And that has had quite an influence on Africa, um, but that's changing. Nigeria, which is the most populous country in Africa, a couple of years ago accepted transgenic cowpea, probably better known to us as black-eyed pea, but it's a very important crop in sub-Saharan Africa. It was genetically engineered to resist an insect pest, and that's been accepted now. And we're working with the group which engineered that to now add in our modification to get not only them protected against pests, but also to have high yields. I think the countries where it's really needed, this is beginning to happen. Well, finally, Steve, we tend to think of nature as being, I don't know, semi-miraculous. But when I look at the green leaves of plants that I see out the window here, I see that nature, which has had billions of years to work on this problem, has plenty of room for improvement. And that kind of surprised me. Yes, and many people have made that point as well, but evolution is about getting your genes into the next generation. And there are many, many ways of doing that. And productivity is only you know one, one part of that. The other thing, of course, is that you know, we, and we found this without some of our modelling work with our digital twin, that most of our crop plant ancestors evolved in a carbon dioxide concentration, which is about half of what it is today. And a large part of that increase has occurred in the last 50, 60 years. That's very little evolutionary time to adapt. And carbon dioxide is limiting to photosynthesis. So you know, one of the limiting substrates has changed very quickly. 
and evolution hasn't had time to pick up on it. And at least one of the modifications we've made is actually adapting the plant to the higher CO2 that we have in the atmosphere today. Looking to the future. Well, Steve Long, thank you so very much for speaking with us. And I think uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to those uh, you know, high efficiency plants. I hope they make a high efficiency salad for my dinner. Uh, Seth, many thanks for your interest and your challenging questions. Stephen Long is a professor of plant biology and crop sciences at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. So Seth, that brings us to the big picture question in the show. What is your takeaway in this episode about flowers? Well, you know, I tend to think of flowers as decorative, you know, and romantic and all that sort of thing. But really what they're about is something called genetic plasticity, right? If you can evolve new characteristics in a fairly short period of time, you can adapt to a changing climate, for example. And flowers are part of that process, at least for plants. And their success is attributed to the strategies they came up with, if you could say that, although it wasn't conscious for precise pollination. And as Dr. Dunn said, the march of the flowers, the pollen, and the pollinators has transformed our landscape. Of course, now, Seth, we are transforming theirs. We know from the historical record that flowers have been uh, instrumental in adapting plants to a changing carbon dioxide level. Can they do it today when we really have a problem with carbon dioxide? Well, I mean, they can do it, but the question is, can they do it quickly enough? And that's, you know, not so clear to me. This show would not be possible without the perennial talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, Lauren Trottier, Rena Shulsky-David, and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates the evolutionary mechanisms that have led to an intelligent species, namely us. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show was created by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Flower Power. 